Thanks, everybody, for downloading this episode of the Chicago Podcast Networks around the world in 30 minutes or so. It'll be myself, Nick Sorrentos, joined by Andy Zamindidis uh, from the Hellenic American Leadership Council. We'll be discussing the State of the Union foreign policy, the economic World Economic Forum in Davos, and we'll be wrapping things up talking about World Religious Freedom Day. All of that on Around the World in 30 minutes or so here on the Chicago Podcast Network, where you can find us on Facebook, Chicago Podcast Network, Chi Town Podcast One on Twitter, and you can find us Chicago Podcast Network at gmail.com. And here we go. Hey everybody, this is Nick Sorantos, joined by Andy Zemanidis from the Hellenic American Leadership Council. We are here doing Around the World in 30 Minutes, uh, or or so. I don't know what just happened to my ability to speak there. I'm a trained broadcaster. The uh, We're going to get to three topics today. We're going to hit on foreign policy in the State of the Union. We're going to talk about uh, a situation in Turkey as it relates to World Religious Freedom Day and kind of look ahead to the next week with what's called the World Economic Forum. Andy, how you doing? How are you, man? I'm good. You had quite the busy week. Yeah, very busy. Where'd you end up going? So, uh, was in D.C. for a lot of meetings with our federal government and to attend the State of the Union. How was uh, that? Uh, it's a great experience. It's, uh, it's, you know, kind of D.C., you know, a lot of people call D.C. Hollywood for ugly people, <laughs> right? So, you know, you get... Uh, you have things like in Hollywood, the, the Oscars and the Golden Globes and the rest. And in D.C., you have the State of the Union and inaugurations and uh, the Correspondence Dinner. Uh, this is one of the major uh, events in D.C. The fact that it was President Obama's last one, you know, made it... Uh, it was President Obama's last State of the Union and Speaker Ryan's first... State of the Union, so... Uh, in the in that most yeah. uncomfortable of chairs where you have to sit there, keep a straight face for an hour while a guy talks about everything that you disagree with. Yeah. Uh, yeah, when you, when you have two different parties up there. So it was, it was very interesting and um, not... Uh, I'm not sure what's going to come of it, but... Uh, well, it was, it, was a non, it was a non-traditional State of the Union. First of all, I mean, typically, historically, it's been, especially the last 20, as long as I've been alive and following it, it's traditionally, here's a list of things we're going to work on for the year, here's why we're doing it, and then the president goes out and stumps for it for the rest of the time period. This was not that. This was President Obama... You know, he, he did it like a high school speech. It was the only thing I kept thinking the entire time was, here are my four topics. I will highlight these four topics. Then I will explain each topic and bring it together with a conclusion at the end. Well, he he said that it was about the, the future of the country, and he did actually put out a laundry list of items. Uh, I think, you know, there wasn't going and stumping for legislation because he knows legislation is not going to get through this Congress in his last year. He's a lame duck president. There's, you know, there's m- several members of Congress running, you know, uh, 
for president, there's Senator Cruz and Senator Paul and Senator Rubio and Senator Sanders. So, you know, it's it's really not the time uh, to be suggesting such, sorry, suggesting a uh, a bold uh, bold legislative program. However, he said, you know, let's start with working on a cure to cancer. He said he's going to put together a team headed by Vice President Biden. He called uh, he called for the passage of the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership uh, Trade Agreement. He called for the lifting of the Cuban embargo. So he threw out several goals out there. Yeah, it just it didn't. I, I you're you're not wrong, but it just felt like even in those things that he called out, it was more political theater than it was substantive. So, I mean, ending the embargo is something that could actually happen, but you appoint Joe Biden as the point man for uh, cancer research. Okay, great, but he's going to be there for nine months. So unless we're curing cancer in the next, you know, nine to 11 months, he's not going to be in a position to really do anything with that once he leaves office. Not to mention, and this is the part that I don't know if you remember, but George Bush made the same promise in one of his State of the Unions. I think it was like his fourth one. That because, it, and I'm not trying to be, but it's, it, it bugged me because it was the same analogy. We decided to go to the moon, and 10 years later we were on the moon. If we say we're going to cure cancer, 10 years from now we can cure cancer. President Bush said that, and here we are 12 years later, and we haven't cured cancer. And now President Obama has done it. And the... Well, I'll tell you this, though. Putting Joe Biden in charge of it may be significant just it in and of itself because that's uh, he just lost his son yes to cancer uh second i don't we a lot of us don't know what has gone on beforehand in leading up to this but the state of the union is being worked on for weeks if not months beforehand uh, i cannot imagine that he would so recklessly make this announcement if there's not some follow-up coming there and there's yeah. a lot of behind the scenes stuff for example the day of the state of the union the very day of the state of the union we had another crisis involving iran where our two ships uh were, were captured by the iranian revolutionary guard for going into their territorial waters supposedly and they held 10 of our of our sailors uh, as prisoner and there was all kinds of speculation on whether that was going to be mentioned in the State of the Union. And it wasn't. And there was all kinds of angst that the president didn't make a big deal about it. And then today, we see the prisoner exchange, um, w- with including the Washington Post journalist that was finally released. Uh, so, clearly... That was being worked out then, so we don't we we really don't know everything that's going on. Oh no, absolutely! And and if anyone's really interested in it, there's a there is a fantastic, uh, as we always like to point to it, there's a fantastic episode of The West Wing called uh, "He Shall" from time to time, and it's all about his. I believe at that point in the show, it would have been his second State of the Union, uh, but it's a fantastic episode that gets into the politics of what makes it into the speech and what doesn't. The I want to hit on a couple little things from the foreign policy aspect of the State of the Union, though. First of all, I noticed that with the exception of broad-reaching themes, it was relatively light on foreign policy. It was generally light on policy in general, but it was it, it was definitely light in the realm of foreign policy. Uh, they mentioned the Iranian deal. You and I talked about that, and I think in our second episode that we did together, uh, did my favorite thing in any political speech, which is 
I'm going to talk to you for a second about what the problems we have with our military around the world are. And then I'm going to tell you how great America's fighting force is so that everyone has to stand up and applaud. It's, it's that great political theater moment. But here's the one I want to get. There, there are two things I really want to get into with you. The first one is, and it's been a big story, at least among Republican candidates and among uh, Fox News and the like, his decision to not use the term Islamic terrorist has set off a lot of people saying that the president isn't being realistic about the situation. Do you have any feelings about that, or do you think it doesn't matter? Because they, they, they just want the term used so that we can vilify Islam even more. Well, first of all, using, not using it in the speech was not a problem for me because he, he talked about the Islamic State, and I actually do use the word or the phrase fundamental is uh, Islamic terrorism. Uh, I actually was a big fan of Christopher, the late Christopher Hitchens' Islamofascism. Um, but when you're talking about Islamic terrorism, you, that's broad. Right? That's not only the Islamic State. That's also Hamas. That's also Hezbollah. That's uh, Boko Haram, which a lot of people don't talk about. There's groups. Well, Andy, in, that's in Africa. Nobody cares about what happens in Africa. Well, you know, they you should. Care. I care. No, Most no, no, people no. don't care. Well, they should because Nigeria is a key state. Um, Nigeria has resources. Nigeria can affect uh, trade routes and, and all the rest. So, you know, it only... And frankly, if people remember, it wasn't maybe, you know, 18 months ago when everybody was remembering and everybody's holding up the signs, bring back our girls, or give back our girls. Hashtag bring back uh, our girls, yeah, yeah. bring back our girls. So that was Boko Haram. So, you know, using it, just saying Islamo, uh, Islamic terrorism is not enough. You, the Islamic terrorism... Uh, deals with several different groups. All of them are challenging. He pointed out the challenge of the Islamic State uh, or ISIL, as uh, you know, Islamic State, ISIS, and ISIL are interchangeable. Uh, I wasn't necessarily satisfied uh, with his analysis there. Uh, I do agree with the president. Let's not overplay them. Let's not make them more than what they are. But uh, I disagree with him when he says it's not an existential threat. Maybe if you define existential threat in the, the narrowest of ways, yes, it's not an existential threat at this point. But ISIL is an existential threat to Europe. If Europe falls to this existential threat, what kind of Western civilization do we have? We can't stand alone as the West here in the United States. Okay, but wait, let me, because the way that you're, you're phrasing this, and, and the, the, the thing that you just said, if Europe were to fall to the, to the threat of, of ISIL and everything like that, what does that mean to you? Because to me, when someone says fall to the threat of any sort of foreign or, or terrorist organization or anything, I agree with the president. He said during his uh, State of the Union... Uh, and, and it's a phrase that I really enjoyed. It, ISIS and ISIL do, does not threaten our national existence. I believe that. There's, there is something about the United States of America. We are separated on both sides by large oceans. And our, the, the two countries we share borders with are two of our strongest allies. So it's not like they're going to have Muslim 
troops marching in the streets of the United States. I also don't see that happening in Europe. But if you're talking about losing liberty in the face of trying to maintain security, that I can see. But to sit here and say that you're, you're, I mean, do you think that suddenly Paris, France is just going to become, well, we're tired of being killed, so now we're all Muslim? Like, I'm just curious what you're, when you say fall to the threat of, what do you mean? Well, first of all, yes, sectarian violence, why not? It, when when uh, your father was your age, there was a great place called Sarajevo, the Paris of the Balkans. Um, look what happened there in our lifetime. Uh, and that was sectarian violence. You know, the, the, within the former Yugoslav uh, Republic of Macedonia, now in, in the Balkans, there could be sectarian violence there. And, again, what is... I guess we're having going to have a debate about what the what the definition of the threat to national existence. Well, if you want to define it as that narrowly, then it's okay. It's only the Soviet Union and the, and China that is a potential threat to the national existence. But you know, on September tenth, two thousand one, nobody would have said Al Qaeda is a threat an existential threat and clearly they were an existential threat they didn't destroy the united states but they reshaped the entire way we live the way we do business and everything so you know i don't i i'm not one to overstate what isil is or is not but we've called them a jv team we keep trying to put them down what is it going to take them exploding a dirty bomb you know, they're overrunning Europe by sending refugees over, right? Not that the refugees are bad, but they're changing the demographics of Europe. And as a result, they're changing who leads Europe. And Europe, which we spent generations taking down walls and taking down fences, now Europe is is constructing fences again, constructing barbed wire, razor fences. Right now, because Turkey is not living up to its um, its commitments to f- stem the flow of refugees, the European Union is b- building a fence on the northern border of one of its members, Greece. Before long, they may start that in Italy, too. So the Europe that we spent so much time uniting may fall apart. And the political consequences, when you talk about Russia gaining influence or other countries gaining influences are huge. And I think uh, one thing we should have learned from 2001, from September 11, from the economic crises, from even the Chinese economic crisis that we discussed last week, there is no longer any such thing as over there. That is true. No, I agree with you on that. Uh, That the way communication works nowadays, we're not separated as much as we used to be we are in many ways the world people would not necessarily like to hear this but we are in many ways the world of the united states of america it, it's a weird thing because we are and it was one of the things that mentioned in the state of the union the united states can no longer be the world's policeman and just going everywhere and settling every conflict and doing nation building everywhere at the same time though there's a lot of rhetoric that gets used especially in the campaigns here to make it seem that you and I right now are should be afraid for our lives because of ISIL. And you can't live your life that way. And the truth is, 
most people are in threat of losing their lives on a daily basis from any number of things. Here in the United States, you, you and I could go to a movie tonight and be shot down in a movie theater. Yeah, I don't buy that analogy because you're right. There's random, there's random danger. There's statistics. But then you have a force that wants to kill you, that is actually planning on killing you. Right? Well, I'm not telling people be afraid, be terrorized, because they win if they're terrorized. But there's also the flip side. There was a great, there, there's an editor, you know, the foreign policy editor for the Wall Street Journal, Brett Stevens, gave a very tremendously impactful speech where he said, we are losing our instinct for danger. You are, you know, when you're a parent, you always make sure, you know, you're crossing the street, you're, you're holding on to your kid, you, you have this, this kind of instinct. You go somewhere yourself in a strange neighborhood, you have this instinct for danger. We are in a very volatile world right now, and we're acting like, hey, you know, let's not overreact. I, nobody's saying overreact, just react. Okay. All right. Uh, it may you may statistically be more likely to get die in a car crash than ISIS than ISIS killing you, but ISIS wants to kill you. GM doesn't. Well, you know, for profits they might. I'm just I'm, I gotta lay in the joke, Andy. Yeah, I gotta lay in the they joke. They might not care if you die. <laughs> yeah, they but, don't care if you but die. They're, they're, they're not, not out to kill you. To kill you. They just don't give a damn when you do. I want to. Where we we got about. Eh, 13 minutes left here in the show. I want to switch over. You sent me a, an article this morning, and it, I looked into it, and we watched this thing. And I, I want to kind of open it up to you, and I'll just go with what I said, with what I got here. Today is World Religious Freedom Day. Uh, you are using that forum and that event to not just talk about it, the religious freedom as a whole across the world, but also to focus it a little bit on a situation that's taking place in Turkey. Uh, I could explain it, but then I'll make mistakes. So why don't you explain what's going on, and then we'll talk about it. Sure. You know, Christianity, as we have uh, previously noted, started in the Middle East, right? There were there were the five original patriarchates before the schism of uh, Roman Constantinople, but that's a Catholic and Orthodox church. And it was Rome, Constantinople, now Istanbul, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. Those were the, the five birthplaces of Christianity as we know it. Um, and there were the, the two brothers. Everybody knows the Pope as a successor to St. Peter. Well, there was also St. Andrew, St. Peter's brother. And the patriarch, the ecumenical patriarch of the Orthodox Church, uh, who is now in Istanbul is is that successor? So the the Ecumenical Orthodox Church has been in this uh, strange situation for centuries now that it's been under the the sovereignty of first the Ottoman Empire and now the Republic of Turkey. Unlike the Catholic Church, where the Vatican is independent, it's actually its own state. Uh, the the Orthodox Church is literally subject to not only the laws of Turkey, but very much the governance of Turkey. Because Turkey, at this point, and for the last uh, <coughs> nearly 
40-some years, denies any legal status to the patriarch, does not recognize him as ecumenical. So this is the, the basically the orthodox version of the Pope has 300 million followers worldwide, and Turkey says, no, no, you're just the bishop for two and a half thousand Greeks in Istanbul. Uh, they have seized 95% of the church's property in Turkey. Uh, and the one way you continue the patriarch, uh, uh, because Turkey also has this absurd rule that you have to be a Turkish citizen to be ecumenical patriarch of the Orthodox Church. Which they don't recognize. Which they don't recognize. Uh, and the only way you could be a Turkish citizen and still be ecumenical patriarch is going to a seminary in Turkey, the Halki Theological Seminary, which they closed over 40 years ago, and it remains closed today. Uh, so, you know, you look at all this, and it was interesting a couple of years ago when Pope Francis was chosen. And you see the white smoke, and you see... Uh, this the speculation is the Pope going to come from Argentina or is he going to come from Germany or Italy or Nigeria and all the rest you don't have that in the world's second largest Christian church you don't have that the mayor of Istanbul has to have a say the prime minister of Turkey the minister of the directorate of you know religion in Turkey I mean, maybe the papacy would be more fun if Berlusconi could choose it, but could you imagine if Berlusconi was choosing the Pope? It would be a very attractive <laughs> young woman. So, um, you know, th this issue of Halki Theological Seminary should be a starting point. And, and for over 12 years, it's something that this government in Turkey has said, okay, we'll open it. And... In 2004, they said we'll open it. And then again in 2005 and in 2006. And when President Obama did his first overseas trip in 2009, he addressed the Turkish Grand National Assembly. He told them, open the Theological Seminary. Vice President Biden went to uh, Turkey and visited the Patriarch Secretary Clinton. Secretary Kerry went. Uh, and in a, in a famous news conference in March 25th, Greek Independence Day, by the way, 2012, uh, President Obama and then Prime Minister Erdogan, now President Erdogan, uh, met on the sidelines of a, a security conference in South Korea. Erdogan tells Obama in private, I'm going to open Halki. Obama stands up at a press conference and says, I'm thrilled to hear you're going to open Halki. This March 25th, it will be four years since they lied about that um, and frankly this is a pattern of behavior in in turkey turkey is consistently rated uh, the last few years as one of the world's worst violators of religious freedom i wanted to ask you about that uh violators of religious freedom and and I'm, this is a topic that i'm not as familiar with as it comes to others is how other countries have to deal with religious freedom to me and my very, very isolated American education, religious freedom is, is an American ideal. Is it an ideal that is protected by international law? Because I, I, I honestly, yes. is Turkey required yes. by law? Yes, yes. Okay. Yes. 
I mean, they're a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights. In fact, uh, they've been sued for the seizure of, of property. There are all kinds of other United Nations conventions. The, uh, the UN Convention, the Declaration on Human Rights, talks about the freedom of worship and, and all the rest. And um, and again, the the... You know, it's the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom that's giving them that ranking. So, you're right. You're right in saying that the U.S. was actually founded on on religious freedom, whereas other countries were not. And that also plays a role in in the Patriarchate because the Patriarchate, the Greek Orthodox Church here in the United States, is under the direct administration of the Ecumenical Patriarchate. So when I think about my First Amendment rights as a Greek Orthodox American, if you know Turkey decides they're going to choose who my patriarch is, they're affecting my you know First Amendment rights. It, 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 I understand the concern and the and the controversy of it, but it, to me, it's a it's a very strange thing to tell a predominantly Muslim country that is ruled under a... It is announced as secular, but it is exists under Muslim law. It's not under Sharia law. It says it's a secular country that tolerates religious freedom, but it's hard to me for me to understand... The Republic of Turkey has never... Actually, Republic of Turkey was founded on the concept of Western law and eschewing Sharia law. Yeah, I, I that, exactly. and they've entered actually treaties. They 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 have treaties that say they are going to respond respect all these rights. And I get where you're going, but you know, this is the international standard. They want to be a NATO. They are a NATO country. They want to be an EU country. EU countries are, you know. Paying, respecting no, you're, you're everybody else. You're, you're absolutely world. right. And it, the only thing is, and, and we've talked about this off the air, but I, I may, forgive me for going to this route, but I am, my foundation in politics comes from three places. One of them is Star Trek. And the truth is, is I've always been a big supporter of, in international policy for the United States, the prime directive, you know, non-interference. But if a country has said, like Turkey has said, that they want to be a part of it, then you have to play by the rules that everyone else is playing for. Uh, playing by therefore based on what you're saying then i don't understand what going forward now that they've been lying for four years about this what are you looking to do because we're, we're coming up on the end of this year what, what are you looking to do in the next week or so and by using today and other things what what's the plan going forward to try to fix this solution well this fix week this, solution, fix this, this problem this week you know uh, congressman john sarbanes from maryland along with three major caucuses in Congress, the Hellenic Caucus, the International Religious Freedom Caucus, and the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission, uh, sent a letter to President Obama uh, reminding him of the status of, of religious freedom in, uh, in Turkey, and specifically this question of Halki. Uh, we launched a major online right Congress action backing up that letter, joined, you know, asking 
other members of Congress to join these caucuses in, in reminding the world of, of the plight of the ecumenical patriarchate. And the you wrote a fantastic, by the way, while, while you were upstairs, I read your articles. Uh, you wrote two that were just absolutely, the, the, the turn the key article was fantastic, and uh, I'm trying to remember your second one, the one that you just did. Um, something worth, really worth noting. Something really worth noting was a fantastic piece. Yeah. Well, you know. Hellenicleaders.com, ladies and yes. gentlemen, if you want to look it up. So part of it is keep the spotlight on the issue uh, because one of the pieces that you noted uh, is that we keep moving goal coast, goalposts backwards. And, oh, we can't achieve this? Let's ask for something smaller. No, just keep asking for what you really want until you get it. And we can't pretend... And this was a problem with Turkey. We kept pretending that everything was getting better. And I disagree with Star Trek, uh, the prime directive. Uh, there is, we, you agreed with me that there is no such thing as over there anymore. And every time we have conflict, there's, and we're witnessing this right now, you have massive migration flows and, and refugee flows and, and f- wars over resources. And uh, this affects everybody downstream there is a downstream effect there is a ripple effect and frankly when it comes to turkey and when it comes to the middle east the middle east used to be a place the greater middle east i'm putting turkey in there where there were jews and greeks and muslims and it was it was really the place where all the people the book were and the less diverse the middle east has become the more dangerous it has become when you look at a hundred years ago in world war one it was europe that was the bad place for the world it was the european countries that were causing all the problems hundred years later the demographics of the middle east have changed the only reason isis is only killing christians and yazidis is because all the jews are gone already there they they wiped out Jewish populations. If you look at Egypt, there used to be Egypt, in Egypt and in Syria. There used to be substantial Greek populations. Cleopatra was Greek, right? Uh, Constantine Kavafi, one of the most famous Greek modern Greek poets, he lived in Alexandria. So all these populations are gone. If you get rid of the last remnants of it, there is no nothing we, there to stop there, it. Th- you know, it's going to be increasingly fundamentalist. It's going to be a situation where we may not uh, be able to, to bridge the divide between West and East. I would just like to point out to people, if you ever want to be really fascinated by the Middle East history, go online and look up photos from the Middle East from 1920 to 1950 for the swing of the right-leaning Muslims came into the area. It, it looks like the United States in the 1950s. Baghdad in particular, up until I think 1965, was basically a New Orleans. Like It, it had all these different religions and everything there. And it was Beirut was called the Paris of the Middle East. There you go. Alright, we gotta, we're coming up on the end of this, we gotta wrap it up, but before we go, I wanted to give you the chance. Coming up this week is the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland? Yep. Okay. What the hell is this thing, and why does it scare me so much? Uh, well, maybe because you don't like 
the elites getting together. <laughs> Listen, I'm picturing the Simpsons when uh, they're all in that little room, and it's Mr. Burns, and they're on top of a mountain, and there's lightning striking in the room. So the, the, this is the famous meeting, winter meeting of the World Economic Forum, where you're going to have a couple thousand attendees, mostly world leaders, uh, the heads of international institutions, IMF, top scholars, and the rest. Um, it's it's really a place where the global elite, elected and non-elected, come together and uh, they don't have any formal governance uh, there. It's not a formal body. They can't come to any uh, specific ideas or specific decisions that are binding on anybody. But uh, I, I live by the principle, if you put a lot of smart people in a room, something good will come of it. And there have been in the past, uh, for example... You know, 20 years ago, on the sideline, more than 20 years ago, but on the sidelines of Davos, Shimon Peres and Yasser Arafat got together, and that led to the Oslo Accords. So it'll be very interesting to see what's going on. Um, the theme of this year's Davos is the fourth industrial revolution. You're going to have a lot of high-tech companies there. Uh, Bill I, Gates is going there. Bill Gates, you know, uh, companies... You know, some of what I call the disruptors, Airbnb, Facebook. You know, if you, if, if you think about what's going on in high tech, you know, the, the, biggest, the biggest hotel provider in the world right now doesn't own any hotels, Airbnb. The biggest taxi uh, company doesn't own any taxis, Uber. Uh, the biggest provider of uh, online news is Facebook, owns no newspapers. So it, it'll be interesting what comes out of there. The fact that it comes also on the tail end of the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, maybe we might get some something interesting there. And then there's going to be just a lot of world leaders there at a time when there are a lot of flashpoints. And it'll be interesting to see what sideline meetings, particularly Biden and Kerry, have. Uh, just to let everybody know, I also should tell you, in the piece that I saw about this, uh, they did mention that there are a lot of exclusive parties as well. So if you are going, make sure you bring your KY jelly and your champagne. It's a lot of boring people. It can't be that exclusive. <laughs> it's the boring people you got to worry about, Andy. It's the boring people who like to dress in weird clothing and everything else. Uh, anything else you want to say, Andy? Have a great week. All right, everybody. That has been Around the World in 30 Minutes or so. I am Nick Sarantos. That was Andy Zemanidis from the Hellenic American Leadership Council. He is the executive director. Go to HellenicLeaders.com. You can check out his blogs on a lot of different issues. And, uh, you know, maybe help them out. Maybe throw them a little scratch every now and then and make sure that they're all good. Other than that, ladies, of course, you know, if you want to send scratch to the Chicago Podcast Network, we won't object to it either. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. I believe the term we're looking for is uh, we out. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it.